I'm getting a little white noise on you. Oh, I got a fan running. Is that me? Yeah, I think it is. Can you push it back? If I push it back, I might as well turn it off, which I just did. So if uh, L passes out, um, <laughs> please call me. Just, just go on without me. Hold up. You're the in show Harlem. show must go on. This is a public service announcement. Hello, and welcome to Decoding Ford. Let me tell you dudes what I do to protect this. The podcast where we fearlessly and ferociously explore, debate, and laugh at the complex inner workings, issues, and thinking of today's grown only describe us as soldiers, survivors. Now here's the crew. Allow me to introduce myself to Mac, aka Mr. Rourke, making all your fantasies come true. Talk, talk so nicely. Up next, I kicked the mad style, so step off the Frankfurter. Brooklyn's best kept secret, Alaric. Half man, half amazing. Let's not forget, Mr. Straight with no chaser. And Harlem's adopted son, Leon, aka L. O. I'm complex. I excel, then prevail. And last, but definitely not. Not least, the master of impressions, king of the town, who's our favorite comedian. I hope he becomes yours too. Now let's get it all in perspective. Mr. Vincent Perez. My family, what up? This is Decoding 40. You already know. Don't stop. No one can do it better. Better, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of Decoding 40. My name is Macca, a.k.a. Mr. Rourke, a.k.a. Whoopi. And I am sitting here with my main man. L dot O dot. All up in your ear hole. Something in your ear? Ear, ear hole. Ear hole. In your ear hole. Yes. Okay. Great. Yo, I, was up? I thought he so said J. Cole. Did yeah, no, it was, I know. I, I thought Cole he was going to kick mind. some bars. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> That's later in the show after a couple of drinks. All right. So you haven't had any drinks yet? No, I'm just starting. I think you need to have some. That'll make you, uh, yes. your speech better. Oh, because normally you come in there with like a two bars. Yeah, and everybody. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. You know what? You know what it was. I was. Um, I'm not. I'll get into it later. But I was really kind of messed up this whole weekend about John Lewis. So, but we'll get into it. Oh, okay. All, All right. right. All right. Yeah. I was expecting so much more. Uh, you know, I can't follow that okay, up. Okay, I, I lowered the bar. Yeah, you did. You did. Lower, I, I, lower. I can't lower that. I, I can't. I can't follow that up. You know, it's your boy Vin in the building. I don't. I don't say anything else. Rest in peace. Right. Thanks, L. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for destroying the intro, L. Yeah, yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Right. Thanks. Good, good job. Good job. I do what I can and, do. What I can do it. And what's up? This is Albert. Creepier and creepier every day. <laughs> yes, yes. Get more. I've been working color. on the creep. I've been mm. working on the creep. It is. So, what's going on in your lives, fellas? I'm hot. You guys have heard my uh, adventures with all these ACs. I'm down to two ACs in my uh, foyer right now. Um, two out of six. How'd two out happen? of six. <laughs> Are any of them on right now? So, okay, just for context, <laughs> my apartment requires three ACs. Uh-huh. Two of them have been installed. We're still waiting for the third one. Of the other four, those two were shipped back to PC Richards. Now I have another two that needs to go back to Sears. The funny thing is, when the guy from PC Richards came to get the two ACs, he saw all four ACs in the foyer, he goes, yeah, what the hell are you doing in here? Why do you have so many ACs? <laughs> so the thing, though, that's pissing me off is Sears wants me to pay to ship them back. Wow. And I'm kind of pissed off about that because they are the ones that recommended these ACs. So it's kind of like, so we've been b- going back and forth with this for three weeks now. I decided to pay half of what they wanted me to pay and uh, they'll come pick them up tomorrow. So 
then I still need to order another AC, which goes into the bedroom. Jesus. Yeah. So it's it's been a nightmare. But so you know, it is. has your credit card company called you yet? about no. all these ACs which i purchases. surprisingly i was like they, they're going to send a fraud alert or something yeah. but they have it so it's only because during COVID i have been spinning like a madman so i've probably increased the threshold for what might trigger a, a fraud alert so then to add on to that the complex is doing capital improvements on the buildings and they have to tear into the wall of one of the actually both of the bathrooms and column in our bedroom and one wall that shares the wet wall with the kitchen. So I'm having a dandy fucking time when it comes to staying at home right now. And it is out of control. So luckily, my mother-in-law agreed to take the kids so we can have a little bit of space and they won't be kind of dealing with all the construction that's going on. But that sounds like a good trade off. Rick's like, I don't care what you do to the house to get the kids out the house for like two weeks for me. I don't know. <laughs> I need a new roof. Yeah, the kids are leaving. <laughs> so that's what's going on with me. What's going on with you, Rick? Oh, let's see, man. Uh, as you guys know, I've been uh, baking bread. I've been gardening. I've been putting up shelves. I've been very handy around the house. Like every morning now, like I'm, I wake up in the morning and I go ward the garden because I, I want these vegetables now. I want them. I got to make sure that these vegetables grow. Like, they're, they're, they're like my new babies. And banana bread. That's my life. Officially, it's over. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know I wear cargo shorts every day now. Oh, man. Oh, I'm going to no, get you a no. pair of farmer oh. overalls and a fucking hat and some straw in your mouth, and you could just play the role, get you a rocking chair like, like in The Godfather with <laughs> spraying the tomatoes. This time last year, he was talking about flying I just, overseas. I just wear and... cargo shorts and black socks. Oh, oh Jesus. God. You got oh, the Jamaican. You got the Jamaican hat on. And Bro, no, I'm joking. He's got a Jamaican uniform <laughs> on. Vin, what's up with you, B? Uh, nothing much, man. Just uh, enjoying some days off from work. Um, I'm just happy to be home and not dealing with uh, COVID land, a.k.a. transit. But uh, everything's good, man. You know, um, I finally got my backyard cleaned. Uh, it cost me a little more money than I really wanted to pay, but the dude, it was one dude. It's like, this dude comes in with like some stuff and I, and I wanted to get a, a person of color to do it because I want to keep the dollar in the community. <laughs> I want to keep the dollar. I want to, I want to support black businesses. And I try to get a black business to come mm-hmm. through my yard. They never called me back. Oh. So I wound up getting this dude, this Chinese dude, he oh. came through and he hooked it up. I thought you said a colored person. I'm sorry. A person of color. And, you know, that's what I wanted to do originally. I wanted to get a black person to do it, but they never called me back. I guess they were busy. So I'm I'm hoping they were busy. So I got this little um, Asian guy came in and he did it. He hooked it up for me. Uh, Asian doing yard work. That's a, that sounds like an oxymoron. He was, no, it wasn't an oxymoron. You see Mr. Miyagi. You saw how fucking hooked up his shit was. (laughs) 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 you got bonsai in the backyard i got bonsai i got streams and shit this nigga put cranes in my backyard son god damn it i got i got a hibachi grill i got a hibachi grill i got sake and a motherfucking come on man listen listen nah he people Working out, working out back there right now. Listen, it what what I mean, it, it was like two seventy or something like that. It was a little expensive for me, just because I know how big my yard is. It's not that big, but yo, when you looked back there before he went, yo, 
I knew it was fucked up when he walked back. He goes, whoa, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I said, yeah, I got a little, I got a little problem with the weeds and stuff. He's like, yeah, uh, oh my God. And at one point he's like, yeah, my spark plug uh, went out on my, uh, on what is it, the weed whacker. He's like, yeah, wow. you got a lot of weeds back here. I was like, yeah, man, just hurry up and do it. Don't say nothing. I gave him some water. I was a nice host, at least. I gave the guy some cold water. 12 ounces? I gave him two bottles of Poland Spring. Uh-huh. Shit. It wasn't well, tap water. I bet you took it off the bill, didn't you? Didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's two bottles of water there, Link. Oh, don't, that's $2, homeboy. <laughs> <laughs> that's $2 a bottle because it's cold. Ooh, oh, that's man. coming off the bill. Vin, Vin got him sharecropping out there. He got him sharecropping. Nah, but uh, all jokes aside, now nah, he he did a great job, and and the yard's clean now. Now I had to basically cover the entire yard with black plastic to kill whatever's left of those weeds. So next year I'll be able to um garden, you know, so nice. I can grow some peppers and onions and all that other stuff. Dope, Get some dope, chickens dope. back there, you know, be a real Puerto Rican backyard, you know. <laughs> <laughs> some Congo you know, drums. <laughs> you know, growing up in Cambridge Heights, there was a Haitian family on the next block that had a rooster, and I would hear the rooster like wow. every morning, and I never thought anything of it. Like mm. I, it was so normal, mm. you know. It's a rooster. It's a rooster. And then one day he just stopped uh, making sounds. It just stopped happening. didn't hear him anymore. (laughs) Yeah. He became the dinner. (laughs) One time I was on the BQE uh, getting off, and there was just a chicken walking in the the road. Wow. (laughs) I was like, this is so Brooklyn. But it's not. (laughs) He's like, you going downtown, bro? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I got a date with this hen. It's getting getting crazy, man. (laughs) 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 that went that went went left i don't know yeah so so what's going on with you mac yo for the most part all my life i've had a cast iron stomach i could pretty much every now and then you know bubble guts when i'm traveling sometimes big prop whatever i made some nachos the nachos were delicious they were not your friend (laughs) and i have i have to tell you I have been suffering ever since I mm. made these nachos. They were delicious. They were amazing. They were vegetarian, but uh <laughs> they were not vegetarian. No, they were, yeah, no, they were too. Um, no, nah, no yeah. meat. There was no meat on there's no meat on no meat. I mean the but, animals ate vegetables and made the animals a vegetarian, so it was a vegetarian <laughs> meal. <laughs> so what did, what do you think triggered? I think it was the cheese. I think Oof. it was the cheese. Lactose and I've never I've never I've never been lactose intolerant. I mean mildly, mildly. How much so cheese? Like, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Maybe it was just yeah, no more. Than, no, not yet. No more than you put on two slices of pizza. Was it two handfuls slices? or one handful? Two and a half. If you lost count, it was too much. He's like, oh. I basically opened up the bag and just dumped it on the nacho. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't, did not look at the expiration date of the cheese. Yeah, not so, at all. Half a so pound now, of cheese. You're lucky you didn't just so, automatically shit your pants. So, so now I'm like, I'm learning about lactate and all these things that I yeah. never had to deal with. So I, I called my man. He was like, Yeah, I had the same problem. He was like, He was like, Yo, he said, I he said I didn't used to be lactose intolerant. As I got older, I became, you know, your body goes through changes or whatever. So I'm, I, I don't know if it was that or something else. I I ate, so I'm trying to backtrack that. But it's been um, it's been an interesting couple of days. Um, have not been able to leave the house. So. Mm. It's, that's, that's that cheese, bro. That's lactose for your ass. That's, um, <laughs> that's been exciting, my exciting time uh, for this weekend. But uh, other than that, you know, everything is cool, working, um, kind of lay low. I am still trying to plan a vacation. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm in all of this, I have decided that I'm mm. going to take a vacation, uh, and I don't know what that's going to look like. 
the number of places you can go are limited. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, Europe was the first place I scratched off the, off the, off yeah. the, that. and <laughs> and also it changes from day to day because you can make a plan and then the right. next day that country can close or America's not flying there or whatever. So it's interesting time. It's kind of like whack a mole. Uh, yeah. with uh, Travelocity or whatever I'm using. So, My wife was just telling me that Barbados has yeah. made it so that you could pay $1,500 per person yes. and work virtually yes. from Barbados. Yes. And we were thinking, yes. could we actually do that for the next year? Yes. You have to get tested, though. You have to get tested. $1,500 what, a month? Well, we, we, for the year? No, $1,500 for the year. Yep, but we both... Yeah. Well, you still got to pay and, for your and, and you have to make a minimum of 50000 No, That just crosses me off the list. Well, you can't but, work from home no, anyway. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do that. Can't well, how are you going to work on the train from Barbados? <laughs> he, he got an app. Vinny got an app. He'd be like, yo, lady, get off the train. Push the Hold up. The, I, I, it, the only way that can happen is if I have a teleporting machine because that's <laughs> not going to happen. Well, I can't work from home. Mm -hmm. And it's not that long of a flight to get mm -hmm. back to the States. I don't know if it would be a problem going back and forth, but my industry is shut down right now, so right. I'm not doing anything. Jesus. Although Please. now, although now we're in we're in stage four or phase four, and yep. uh, uh, film and and television and theater production are are back up and running. So I mean, if you go I, to I Barbados, guess start happening. If you go to Barbados, you can sell sodas on the beach. That could be a job. Yeah, <laughs> I can. I can just start directing uh, soca videos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch that. So twelve month tourist visa, tourist visa in Barbados. So uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to go and and uh, you know trying trying to make that happen. I need a little downtime, but I may end up uh, vacationing on Coney Island. So we'll see. Downtime. We've been down for the last four months with this COVID. We're talking about downtime. Everybody, everybody else has been down. You know, I'm so stressed out between the refrigerator and the and the couch. You know, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking COVID. I tell you what, I had to, I had to go outside and pull the to the garbage to the corner today. This, that was a lot. Buddy. <laughs> oh, now, shit. I I have been working. I have been working seven days a week, so mm. I haven't been off. Awful. I don't know, man. It's it's, it's kind of risky to get on a plane, son. I'm talking about they yeah. they just giving out COVID like peanuts. But you know, you know what I realized? We're gonna be in this probably for another 18 months to two years. So the question is, is and and this is not me. You know, I don't want to wear a mask. Saying I'm not that far over there. But but my question is, is am I going to just sit in the house or am I going to live through this? I have stopped living while all of this has been going on, and I've just been sitting in the house and working. And and it's like that's cool, but I do want to go back out, and, and I'm not ready to go back to a bar and have a drink. But I am willing to try get on to a plane something. and get some COVID. Okay, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to go to the bar. That's too risky. Let me get uh, on a plane with the same air. I'm like, I'm like I mean, one of those plastic suits or something. But I, I I do feel you, man. I understand. It, 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 another two years, I don't know, man. I think they're gonna come out with the cure. It's gonna it's gonna come out like a mixtape, November. Might have some microchips in it. I don't know. You know, but. you taking it first? Hell no. They, you know what? See, this is what I don't. I don't know what my rights are going to be because I work for the city. I don't know what they might do. They might say, "Well, you have to have it, or you have to get it done in order for you to work here." Or they may say, "Well, if you get sick, we're not liable because we offered you a vaccine vaccination or something like that." I don't know. Mm. It's. It, I'll have to see when it happens, but I'm not ready to get a, a needle. Not right now.
Let me wait. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to be first, but I'm a, I'm away for the first zombie spread to come through, and then you know after that they they get the, the cure together. Well, well, we still got time in 2020 for zombies, but it's only July. Right. Hold on. Yeah, give it a minute, right? Give it a minute. Yo, this is Vincent, a.k.a. Many Voices. Hey, what's up? This is Alaric, and I'm speaking directly into the mic. This is Mac, a.k.a. Mr. Rock, making all your dreams come true. This is Hello. Thank you for listening to Decoding 40. Make sure that you follow us. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Do we tweet? A little bit. We tweet. We tweet. All right. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter. No Snapchat at all. And go to www.decoding40.com. Make sure you sign up so you can keep following us. Thank you for listening to Coden Party, <laughs> goddammit. I am very excited. I'm very, very excited. We have a very special guest in the house today. We have African-American scholar and activist known for his systems thinking approaches and understanding for the impact of racism and white supremacy on the global African community. His writings, consultations, and research have been instrumental in understanding developmental stages in black males, public policy, and its connection to compensatory justice, relationships between black males and females, infusion of African studies into the school curricula, and the impact of hip hop culture on the contemporary American landscape. He's currently a research professor and director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University and at Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, Dr. Raymond Wimbush. How are you, brother? What's up, y'all? Good to be Thank here. You. Welcome to the yeah. show. Welcome to Decoding Welcome 40. To I'm enjoying the chat. <laughs> <laughs> Big brother, you are welcome to join us anytime. So so we really wanted to have you on because on several episodes uh, previously, we have talked about reparations and we are clearly four people that are totally, completely uninformed about that. So we wanted to bring somebody <laughs> who know what they're talking about because we just, you know, shooting from the hip. So we definitely want, because we know you've written several books, which we'll talk about, and some of the other uh, works that you've done. We definitely want to hear about that as well. But why don't we start at the beginning? What is reparations from your perspective, and how should people understand what what that is and and how it should be understood? Well, the United Nations, uh, they have an actual definition of reparation. Reparation is when a nation or groups of nations commit a crime against humanity against a group of people. It's that simple. And it acknowledges that crime by saying we need to do something to literally repair the damage that we have done. So reparations means we did something wrong, the nation says that, against Jews, against Black folk, against Native Americans, whatever. And we're going to do something, a compensatory mechanism to start correcting that historical wrong. What reparations are not is just a check in the mail. I mean, you that can be a form of reparations, but it's much deeper than what I think some of the newer researchers have been saying about what reparations are. So it's an acknowledgement that a nation has done something wrong and they create compensatory measures for the group that they've done wrong. In the United States, for example, reparations are just as apple uh, as American as apple pie. So we find that that radical left-wing president Ronald Reagan in 1980s he gave reparations for with the Japanese how they had been incarcerated during World War II. Uh, Native Americans have forms of reparation in the restitution of land. They were supposed to have the Black Hills of South Dakota, which Mount Rushmore and your president made that 
you know, ridiculous speech a couple of weeks ago, that was their land. And it had been given over to the Lakota people, but they took it back. White folks took it back. So the only major group in this nation that has not gotten reparations for a crime against humanity has been Black folk. And that's what the struggle is. And uh, it's increasing all over the world, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. I, I, I just wanted to follow up with what you were saying about um, it not being a check in the mail. Right. And I wanted to know if you had an opinion about what forms of reparations would best serve us. Yeah. Well, in 1954, when Brown v. Board occurred, you know, auspiciously, that was for the desegregation of schools in the United States. But a spinoff of Brown versus Board was Voting Rights Act, which ancestor John Lewis fought for, as you know, and we lost him this past weekend. Open housing, affirmative action. That all came from Brown v. Board. Was the same with reparations. Reparations could take the form of saying, I'm just going to say some of the things that reparation scholars and activists have talked about. It could take the form of saying, look, for the next 20 years, Black people in this country will not pay any taxes, sales tax, income tax, business tax, any taxes. That's reparation. Or this, at the age of 18, all Black people in this country can go to any HBCU of their choose. That's a form of reparation. In the Caribbean, my Rasta brothers and sisters, they have said that reparations can take the form of saying, look, you know, I don't know if I can curse on the show, so I won't say it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You can, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, as much as you like. Yeah. Well, you can't, you well, can't well. outcurse the Puerto Rican guy. <laughs> no, you can't. Bro. Don't worry about it. <laughs> But many of the rosters have said, you know, F the Caribbean, we want to go back to Africa. And so they could take the form of repatriation. Uh, it could take the form of small business loan. It could take the form of a reparations bank where people would be loaning only to people who are African descended. So it can take a variety of forms. The thing that troubles me is that some of these newer reparations researchers I ain't going to call any names on the show, but they know who they are. They're talking about it only in terms of money. And it's interesting that the right wing racist media have latched on to that. One study actually said it would cost six point two quadrillion dollars, quadrillion. There's not that take it world. Yeah, well, all of us would. <laughs> Each black person would get $131 million. I mean, so the right thing <laughs> is that let's make, you know, these newer black researchers that are doing this stuff are saying, you know, let's make every black person in this country a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Johnson, he said that we should just give $350,000 to 40 million of us in this country. And if and that amounts to roughly fourteen trillion dollars. And if you can't do anything with three hundred fifty thousand dollars, that's too bad for you. Mm. So it's a lot of emphasis now on reparations as money and a check. But historically, if you go, I mean, you can go back to Queen Mother Moore, Randall Robinson. They've never said that. It's it's part of it, but it's not all of it. I wonder if you could just talk about where we are in terms of the feasibility in getting 
reparations seriously looked at. You know, I know it's the studies being done and, you know, Congress is like playing with the idea of having even more studies. But where are we in actually devising a plan that can be executed to see the fruition of reparations? Let me say one thing. The the bill that the late Congressman John Conyers offered in 1989 did call for a study of reparations. Because in 1989, I, I remember I was teaching at Vanderbilt, and when I told people I was going to do repara- research on reparations, my colleagues said, man, ain't nobody going to be passing no reparations. <laughs> <laughs> I would laugh that as a black scholar. Um, one of my students at Vanderbilt was Michelle Alexander that wrote mm. uh, the new Jim uh, Crow. And, mm. you know, she was a quiet little student. I'm so proud of the work that she's been doing. But in three years ago, myself and Cam Howard, you know, one of the co-chairs of INCOBRA, National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, on uh, in Taifa and others, we rewrote for Congressman Conyers H.R. 40. So the new H.R. 40 said, look, we've done enough studies. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, sounds self-serve. Wimbush wrote a couple of books. Randall Robinson's written books. There's several scholarly articles about it. So what we did in the new H.R. 40 was revise it to talk about remedies rather than just the study. So, as you know, last June uh, of 2019, Sheila Jackson Lee, who is kind of carrying the water for us in Congress, they have pushed for hearings, had them. They were supposed to have them this year, but because of the Rona, you couldn't do that. Mm. Uh, The other thing I got to say is real quick. I've offered what is called the GLASS model, G-L-A-S-S. And I say there's five groups that have to be involved with reparations. Grassroots organizations, first of all. That would be Black Lives Matter and and COBRA, the National Black United Front. The L stands for legislature. That would be legislators. That would be like Sheila Jackson Lee. A stands for attorneys. You know, Mm. people forget that Johnny Cochran, before he made his transition, filed a lawsuit on behalf of the survivors of the Tulsa massacre. Mm. Um, The first S stands for scholars and, you know, myself and others that are doing research on this. And the last one stands for students. So what we've seen with the, you know, the the death of uh, George Floyd is that grassroots organizations have put this in front. You just can't, the, the action has to be on five fronts. We see young people, we see lawyers, scholars, legislators, and grassroots organizations pushing for reparations. And if you look at any movement, be it Marcus Garvey, civil rights movement, those five elements have to be a part of. So do you see the glass, using your metaphor, half full or half empty? And how optimistic are you? Well, I'm very optimistic. When I did Should America Pay years ago, I said, we'll be lucky to have any form of reparations by 2020. And that was like 17, 18 years ago. Well, in fact, you you see what happened in Asheville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. That's a form of reparation. You see what has happened in Evanston, Illinois, another mm-hmm. form of reparation. People are talking about reparations now more than any other time in my lifetime. So I think uh, and in Evanston, they are already dealing with a $10 million fund. It's a small fund, but to start, a lot of people think that reparations are going to be like a 100-meter dash, and it's more like a marathon. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm much more optimistic than I was probably five years ago. Even. Mm. Do you think that it's just going to be government contributing to no. to it, or do you think it's also corporations who have a history of being involved in the enslavement of Africans? Should they be just as uh, accountable? It's an excellent question. And the answer is absolutely. Uh, the government is not just going to be involved with reparations. See, it's, it's like the descendants of Aunt Jemima. You probably heard they're getting ready to sue. Mm. Who makes Aunt Jemima? Is it Quaker Oats or one of them companies? Mm-hmm. Like Quaker Oats, yeah. Right. You, see, what black folk have been doing for the past 500 years, not only in this country, but on the continent, in the Caribbean. You know, I spoke to the Aboriginal people a few years ago, over way over in Australia. All we've been doing is cleaning up white people's mess. That's all we've been doing in terms of illiteracy, diabetes, high blood pressure. These are conditions that were created by the transatlantic slave trade. So what you know, Africans are asking, not only in this country, but all over the planet, they're saying, where's the money that you took from us? Where's the people that you killed, raped, sold? Uh, the 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 minerals of mahogany, gold, diamonds that you stole out of Africa, we want that back. Mm. You, that, if we had kept that, we wouldn't be in the shape that we are in right now. So I'm much more realistic because I, I think the unfortunate murder of George Floyd gave impetus to black folks saying, look, we're tired of this. You know, mm. we're going to do something about it. And you need to start repairing the damage that you've done to us. And so it's not just the government, it's corporation. It's the, all these people, well, I don't want to get in that, but, you know, it, it's interesting how, you know, they're burying Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben in a common grave as if they didn't know that Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima were racist images from the <laughs> All these corporations right. now are doing these things that they said, well, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. They knew about this all along. So they're going to be sued too. And Deidre Farmer Pellman, one of my f- colleagues, I mean, she sued 22 corporations back in 2005 in Chicago. Do you think that the um, a lot of these corporations are um, trying to get on the bandwagon now? Because you see a lot of the Black Lives Matter pictures when you go onto their websites and things of that nature. Or, or is it? Do you think they're afraid of being sued or they're trying to get on the good side so they can get some money like... I tend to believe it's like they're playing the game now in order so they don't they don't they don't find themselves on the chopping block. Well, they are. And 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 I told my students at Morgan, you gotta be careful that the only time white people have ever fought against white people on behalf of black people is the American Civil War. And so for 12 years after that, we had so-called reconstruction. Black folk got elected, they were governors of Louisiana, you know, got in the house and everything. And what happened in 1877, the North and the South said, look, these black folk getting too much. Mm-hmm. We'll take care of Jim Crow up North and you take care of sharecropping down South. And we'll have black codes all over this country, which they mm-hmm. did. So I, you know, I'm going to just be, I don't trust white people. Mm-hmm. Um, I trust white people to be, they're temporarily for us. But I think corporations are doing what is necessary now to keep lawsuits and boycotts away from them at this point. And black folk have to keep their eyes on the prize. 
I have one question. Black Wall Street, for instance, how did that get started and how can we do that again? Especially now that there's so much light put on redlining and the police abuse and all these other things that have fucked with black folks so long. Now that that everybody kind of knows that that's the that's their uh, their game. Can we do it again? And how can we do that again? Well, I think we have done it in other ways. Black Wall Street is the biggest example. You know, there's a study that was done years ago. It's called 300 Eminent People. And Black leadership has always come from predominantly Black communities. Uh, Tuskegee, all of the HBCUs where leadership comes from. I think we've had pockets of excellence, but we didn't nurture them the way that Black Wall Street was nurtured. A few years ago, I just went out there. I had never been out uh, to Tulsa, but I wanted to see, you know, Black. I mean, that was a magnificent creation of us. I don't know if you know this or not, but Black folk had an airline there that was flying people from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Denver, Colorado. The white folks were jealous of us. And I talked to some descendants, like grandchildren of those who died in Wall Street. They moved into this enclave a few miles from Tulsa. And one sister told me something I'll never forget. She said, the mistake that our grandparents made, we had banks, we had schools, we had stores, we had airlines, but we didn't have an army. Mm. Said that we, all of the black folk in this area that is outside, a place called Red Bay, Oklahoma, I think it's red something, they all now are armed. And you have to protect your investment. The same thing mm. happened with Rosewood mm-hmm. in Florida. Yep. So I think we've got to talk about protecting our assets as we build them up. Mm. You are now listening to Decoding 40. Doctor, do you think that that we can actually, I, I think that so much of the American system, especially when we start talking about economics and education, all of these things are so baked in and and systemically not for us. Do you think that it's something that we can do here or do we have to expatriate to do it, to go back to Africa, to the Caribbean, South America, and try to build something somewhere where our resources from here can actually build our own communities and build our own infrastructure and build the control mechanisms around it to protect it. I've been talking to these guys. I've been studying a little bit of Claude Anderson's work yeah. and, and he talks about some of the things that you were talking about, about not only building it, but protecting it. So I'd love to hear what, what your thoughts are around trying to reconstruct it here or build it somewhere else. Well, that's the $64,000 question. You know, a lot of times when I'm talking to reparations to black folk, I'll usually will get an answer a question like this. Well, Dr. Wimbush, if you gave all black folk a check for three hundred thousand dollars on Monday, the Cadillac dealer is going to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hate hearing. I hate hearing that. Man. I've heard it. I've heard it, and the reason why I think that shows some of the psychological damage mm-hmm. that has been done that we don't trust ourselves. So I usually ask black folk. I say, how many of you yeah. in this audience, like if it's an audience of a hundred people, how many of you in this audience would take your money and go out and buy a Cadillac, 
go to Las Vegas and then buy a new pair of shoes. And nobody raises their hand. They say, well, I would start pooling our money together. I think that comes from the, you know, the psychological conditioning of not trusting ourselves. As to the question about whether or not we can do this here, I think that Black folk need to look at Africa and the Caribbean as options. Because otherwise, you're going to pour the money or have the land in the system that oppressed us in the first place. Exactly. Uh, exactly. My, my friend and colleague, Randall Robinson, after he wrote The Debt, we were doing a workshop up in Toronto. He said, Ray, I'm leaving this country. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to Nevis St. Kitts because mm. his wife is from there. Mm. And I thought he was kidding. But, you know, Randall, when he said, I want to spend the last years of my life in an all-Black nation. And he, he's there now, and his book, Leaving, Quitting America, is a mm. powerful book that says why he left. And I, what I like right now is my students at Morgan and when I was teaching at Fisk and Vanderbilt, increasingly I'm seeing my students who are opting for Africa. I've got one of my best students right now. She's in Namibia, and she's cultivating fish. She was at Fisk, man. Uh, mm. And she moved over there years ago. So I think that we have to look at Africa as an alternative, not just this country. Awesome. Awesome. So I, I just want to let the audience know, uh, please go out and support this brother. Just some of his books, The Warrior Method, A Parent's Guide to Rearing Healthy Black Boys, uh, Should America Pay Slavery and the Raging Debate on Reparations. And his latest book is The Osiris Papers, Reflections on the Life and Writings of Dr. Francis Cress. Welsing. Oh, wait, did I miss one? Oh, Belinda's Petition, A Concise History of Reparations for the Transatlantic Slave Trade. So make sure you pick up all of those books and support this brother. And by the way, uh, The Warrior Method was like a Bible in my house. My wife obviously was a student of yours. I I, I had left Fisk Who's before I got there. Lord have mercy. I'm <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot of students. Yeah, you taught me 5,000 years ago. <laughs> that's, good. Yeah. That's, a that's a beautiful thing about the HBCU experience that you you, you, you see so many people around the world or just, you know, around, around the country. And, and that's something you always have in common with them. That's you know, right. Experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. My other notable is uh, I used to um, read Should America Pay on the Train. And it is the only book that I kept the cover on because I usually like to take the cover off to preserve them. Right. But just to be a bit of an instigator on the train, I would keep that cover. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is so you. That is so you. Oh, my God. What is he reading? I can see him on a train like this with somebody in front of him. Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. You ask a white person, you know, they see your book, Should America Pay? <laughs> what is that about? I said, it's about reparation. Yeah. Uh, you know, they'll start, man, white folks will get mad, just the idea. I wanted to call the book America Should Pay. Uh, <laughs> <but my laughs> Harper College, he was a brother, man. He said, nah, man, let's call it Should America Pay. <laughs> Yo, Al, you should get that on Audible book and just play that shit loud in the train car, like everybody. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, Radio Raheem, just yeah, put yeah. it. <laughs> True story. A few years ago, I was crossing the Canadian border on Christmas Eve. I was going to give a workshop in Nova Scotia. I decided I'll never do it again. 
I, mm. I decided to drive from Baltimore up to Nova Scotia just to wow. do it. Never been that way on a drive, you know. And when I was crossing the Canadian border, they pulled me over. I guess they saw a guy with locks. You know, I was that time driving a Hummer at night. <laughs> so I just looked. At the you had a, you must this have had a hundred pounds of weed on you. Weed. Man. You got a hundred pounds of weed. <laughs> and I had to pull you over too. <laughs> they pulled me over the uh customs people, whatever. They looked in the back and I had a box of the warrior method <laughs> and should America pay. So they thought I was a terrorist. This is a true story. <laughs> wow. they, they held me up for an hour just because of the names of those books. Wow. Wow. Mm-mm-mm. It's deep. It's definitely wow. deep. The warrior method is required for every parent. It's just it just it calmed me down as a new father. Because it just gave me some perspective about how I wanted to teach my sons and how I wanted to cultivate their learning. Well, that is now on my Amazon buy list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm adding it right now. Man. Yeah, I, I, I started reading the uh, reparations book um, and I, I got into about a chapter of it and I got to get it. I have to order it. But wow. it, looks, it looks like it's going to get me angry. So I like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you and we and like James Baldwin said, you know, if you black in America and you ain't angry, yeah, wrong with yeah. you? <laughs> Facts. I'm angry. I am. I'm mm. very specific in that anger. I try to convert that anger to something constructive. But yeah, you know, I get pissed off, and we should. You know, they say they say ignorance is bliss. Uh, what's what's the opposite of that? I guess knowledge makes you mad. I don't know. I think it does. I, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, I'm still amazed as a, you know, as a black academic, how many of us don't know the history of our own people. Mm. You, know, and, you know, it's been said before, you know, every, you know, six months when before COVID, you see a movie about Jewish people in the Holocaust. Every six months, there's a Schindler's List, whatever, you know, and black folk don't know their own history. And we need to study, you know, our own history. One of my teachers at University of Chicago where I went to school was John Ho Franklin. He taught us the importance of history. I don't know if you know about Bobby Wright, but he was my classmate. And Bobby used to talk about the psychopathic racist personality. He was the first one who said, instead of us always studying ourselves, which white people are prone to do, we need to study the mentality of a group of people who could enslave take across the Atlantic, rape, sell, mutilate, sell the, make the stomachs of black women commodities mm. to sell their children. We need to study that mentality. We need to study the mentality of this fool in the White House. Mm. How about that? How, how he could do these type of things. And how could they do that with a Bible in their hand as well? Yeah, exactly. They, and, and use religion and, and, and believe in a God, yeah. but then at the same time enslave people, which is crazy to me. Exactly. So, I think even more so than the sociopath standing next to him who is co-signing what he's right. doing. Right. That guy needs to be studied. Right. Well, which one, which one of the sociopaths? Yeah, I was getting ready to say. Well, you could, I mean, yeah, any, of those, any, any of those people yeah, go down the line. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I, I have a question. Do, do you feel like this administration, well, a couple of things, and I also want to be respectful of your time, Dr. Weber, so let's know when you okay. got to go. I, 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 do you feel like this administration was a response to President Obama 
And do you also feel like all of this ultimately is going to be a positive for people of color? Because I feel like this has ripped off the Band-Aid. The racism was always there. It's just now it's on the surface. And now we can clean it up because at least the conversation is happening. So I would love to get your feedback on that. The white supremacists thought that Obama would be the president that Donald Trump is. They thought he was going to be the fool. They thought that he was going to have scandals throughout his administration. And see, I'm a psychologist by trade, not a historian. And see, psychologically, I think that African people underestimated how pissed off white people were at the Obama presidency. I mean, we were proud, you know, we, you know, intact black family, two beautiful children, you know, beautiful, brilliant wife. So we saw Obama kind of as like a role model. We gave this country what we call our best. Mm-hmm. And I had problems with some Obama. In my revision of Warrior Myth, I have a whole chapter about Obama. It ain't, mm-hmm. ain't bad, but it's a critique. Well, Trump, I think, like Ta-Nehisi Coates says, that it's always been that white people, white presidents have like lift the lid of racism like, I don't know if you saw that movie with uh, John Travolta and Samuel Jackson. I'll think of it. Basic Pulp Fiction? Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay. Pulp Fiction. Uh, no. Remember how they were opening up that? Yes. Oh, the trunk. Yeah. Oh, the suitcase. Yeah. Suitcase. See, I think that's what all presidents have done. They've opened it up just a little bit. And you saw this light. Trump opened up the suitcase. It was like a talisman. Right. Trump opened up the suitcase and let all the racism. He out. took the he right. took the hinges off that case. It's not even a, it's, you can't even close anymore. <laughs> right, and he's trying to get another. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. he's trying to get another. <laughs> <laughs> he wants it all out there. So the good part of Trump's administration, I, there is such thing. He is like you just said. He has ripped the pants off of racism and shown. Oh. The for what it is. That's a good thing that he's a, he's too stupid to realize he did it, but he did it. I think he wants a race war. And I've told people bad things come in threes, you know, the COVID George Floyd, and there's going to be one more before mm. November. You'll see. And I think that, you know, that's a good thing. Is he the worst president of the United States in history? Probably history will judge him as such, but all president Kenneth O'Reilly in his book, um, Negro Matters or Black Matters or whatever it's called. He said that every president up until Dwight Eisenhower uttered a racist term publicly. All mm. did. Mm. And this dude kind of re, you know, started it over since Eisenhower. I mean, he's well, the most supremacist. The, the, I mean, make America great again. What do you mean? Is you know, just that term itself, again. Right. What time and are we talking about here? <laughs> he's talking about the time when there yeah. was supremacy unabated. Right. Mm-hmm. So I call the people that follow him. You know, people call him MAGA hats. I call them maggots. I just had a They, you know, describe them perfectly. You know, so I, you know, I, it's going to be exciting and interesting to see what happens in this country in the next six months. They may be. I thought the civil rights era. You know, I've worked with C.T. Vivian, shared a board with him uh, years ago in Atlanta. And I thought that that period and the civil rights period was the worst period I had ever seen in my life. This is worse than that mm-hmm. because we have a president of the United States that as they laughed at Omarosa when they said she said he wants to start a race war. I think that's always been one of his fantasies. And he feels that he has the power to do that now. 
Well, he, you know, the thing is, is the he has the perfect avenue to do it via social yeah. media. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the that's the you know they said the 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 pen is mightier than the sword. That's his that's his pen basically, and he weaponizes his militia. He did it in Michigan when he told him to go walk on the Capitol. So he knows he has that power, and he knows he can use it when he wants to. And he has used it. See, I think this thing that's going on in Portland right now is like a test run because mm. you probably heard. Uh, He's getting ready to send 150 troops to Chicago. Mm. Those are black folk up in there. Portland yeah. white folk. Mm. You ever notice when they start executing people again like they That's did? That's not going to be good. They always start with white people, but they're really trying to get to us. They'll sacrifice one of theirs for us. I mm. think that he's, and I hope the brothers in Chicago will say, look, we need to quit turning these guns on ourselves and turn them to the real enemy. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Well, listen, is there anything that you want to say? I, I want us to get into John Lewis and, and C.T. Vivian. Um, sure. and definitely pay our respects. But is is there any takeaways that people can... You froze up. Did he freeze? Oh, yeah. He froze up for it's a, it's oh, a, the come, FBI come got him. I'm got got him. Got infrastructure. Oh. <laughs> All right. Dr. Wimbush, you, you got you to take cover, sir. You bought too much blackness in this, Doc. <laughs> blackness overload. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> take away. I'll, I'll tell you how I always end my presentation. Read something about black people 30 minutes a day. That's mm. all that we, if you can do, if I could get all Africans in this country to read something about black folk, 30 minutes of history, read Jet, we ain't got Jet Magazine. No. Mm. Something, 30 minutes a day, beside world star hip hop. You know, <laughs> yes. Yes. don't look at TV, just read something 30 minutes a day. And if you do that, you'll educate your mind. free but did you want to share any thoughts on C.T. Vivian and uh, Brother yeah. Lewis? Please. I worked with C.T. Vivian on a board uh, about 10 years ago. What I can say about C.T. is that he was the most humble person I ever met in my life, but one of the great organizers that went unrecognized to a large extent during the civil rights era. Uh, he was always like, in the background, getting things right. He and I did a workshop in 2004 or five on reparation. And mm. he was all for reparation. And that was way before it became popular to talk about. Uh, John Lewis, what can I say? You know, he's a fist guy. I mean, you know, he put his life on the line. You know, his skull was fractured. Every time I walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, I can just think about what happened there you know, in 1965. And if it weren't, I saw somebody, and I'm not going to name his name because y'all know him, but he said, what, tell me one thing that John Lewis, you know, did. And Whoa. when I see, hear somebody like that, said they don't know history at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it wasn't for John Lewis, we wouldn't have the Voting Rights Act. Right. Um, it's being eviscerated, attacked by Trump. Uh, the whole election process is being done. That's John Lewis. So C.T. Mm. Vivian, you know, and Lewis, both of them made immeasurable, con- you know, contributions to civil rights in this country. I think what we forget, um, I know sometimes I do, uh, because you see these leaders now at, at their age now mm. and they were in their 19s, the 20s. They were young. They were young yeah. people out there. 
and all these sit-ins in North Carolina and stuff like that. It's like, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, and it's what's crazy is that because we're of a certain age at this point, we look back, all oh, these young kids out there. But that's what the civil rights movement <laughs> was. But, but I was, I was, you got to you know? respect them. Yeah. You got to, yeah. you, you got to <laughs> respect what they're out there doing because we're past the age of, being as active as they're being, you mm-hmm. know, that's right. Um, Chappelle said it the best. We, I'm, I'm comfortable being in the back seat. Just, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like Ella Baker said, the young people. I mean, the civil rights movement was one. Of, I mean, everybody was in their teens and early twenties when they went south. Mm-hmm. I went to mm-hmm. Oakwood University in 1966 as a freshman. Everybody was young. That's who mm-hmm. did the civil rights movement, and um. Uh, when I hear young people now saying, well, y'all don't give us a chance, take your chance. If we, yeah. or we, you know, when Kwame Ture didn't like some of the things that Dr. King said about nonviolence, he formed, and Ella Baker, of course, SNCC. So mm-hmm. do what you got to do, the Black Panther Party. I mean, all of these were young people. They were young. And I think it's very important for us to remember the, like, the past, the reins to the young ones, as Ella said. And all those factors are important to the to the grand scheme of the movement. You have Absolutely. to have all of those factors involved. Absolutely. And support them because then they need yeah. us because we're the ones that might be able to hand them $100 and say, yeah. exactly. go do your thing. Go buy them some more bullets. That's right. right. There you go. <laughs> I'm for that. When I was at Central State University, I remember one of the professors said that the movement is made of the young and old people. The young people are the brawn. And the older people are the wisdom. And if they work together, they figure out how to navigate the system. That's good. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Great. Yeah. I just got to say about uh, Dr. Wimbush, he's he's the true and living. He's a scholar scholar. uh, And if you're on Facebook, I know a lot of people are exiting Facebook, but he's got an amazing collection of articles and historical references on his feed. And I highly, highly, highly encourage you to follow him on Facebook if you're using the platform. I'm going to read the book. I mean, I, I went on today and looked up some of his works because I wanted to know what we were dealing with. He reminds me of a lot of African history professors I had throughout my life mm-hmm. who basically, you know, were around during those times and just have a different perspective. And it's, it's essential. That he was is a, a scholar. Was a scholar. Give him another round of applause. Yeah. yeah. Thanks again for coming on, Dr. Grimbert. Thank on. you for coming on. Thank you for listening to another educational episode of the Coding 40. This show is dedicated to the Honorable Representative John Lewis and Mr. The Honorable C.T. Vivian. And we're going to take you out with this clip from John Lewis. We'll talk to you guys next week. My simple message would be if you find something that you feel very strong about, stand up, speak up, Speak out, give it your all, push, pull, and as I said from time to time, never ever give up or give in or give out. And whatever you do, do it with faith and hope and much love. We locked in. This is Decoding 40.